0: Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Ed Rosick, author of the horror novel, Deep Roots. Ed's horror and speculative fiction has been featured in numerous magazines and anthologies, including Pulp House, Creepy Campfire Quarterly, and The Half That You See. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. I'm very glad to be here. Absolutely. Well, if someone listening hasn't yet heard about your novel, Deep Roots, how would you describe your new novel?
1: Deep Roots um, is definitely a horror novel uh, set in the urban area of Detroit. uh, Concerns a 30-year-old man, Kevin Siena, who has just been released from prison. Um, When Kevin gets back to Detroit trying to put his life back together, he notices he has this small hair-like thing on his right shoulder, doesn't think anything of it, thinks it's just ingrown hair. And yet he, and then The readers learn over the course of the book that it's uh, actually much, much, much more than ingrown here.
0: Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Deep Roots? I do, actually. The the original impetus
1: that led me to write it was uh, probably about 20 years ago. I like the first scene in the book uh, that people can read for free if they want, either on my website or on Amazon. Um, I got out of the shower and I looked at my right shoulder, and there was this small, dark, black hair. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. It looks doesn't look like anything else I've ever had, and it just struck me as strange. Uh, fortunately, my hair didn't grow into <laughs> what it grew into Kevin, but that really was the start of a of a story because I thought, geez, what if it was something nefarious? What if it was something bad? What what could that be? And that just. Uh, That just grew uh, figuratively and literally into the (laughs) novel.
0: Well, what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first stories published? That's a great question. I've been writing
1: forever. I mean, literally since I was probably about five years old. I think somewhere in my box of stuff that that we all have in our garages or basements, I think there's a, a book of poetry that I probably wrote when I was really five or six years old. So I've been writing forever. Um, my writing really didn't take off, take off in the sense of being professionally published until um, uh, early 1990s. Um, in 1990, I spent six weeks at the Clarion Writers Workshop. If your listeners aren't aware of it, Clarion is one of the preeminent writing workshops in the nation. It's a science fiction, a speculative fiction writing workshop that used to be held here at Michigan State University. I'm, I'm based in East Lansing. And uh, so for six wonderful weeks, I was immersed in a, a writing culture with some of the top names uh, at that time in the literary world in terms of speculative fiction. And it really, really
0: pushed me to the next level. And two years later, I sold my first professional story to Paul house That's great. Um, I'm not sure. Are you hearing that that kind of like noise in the background? I am. I don't know what that is. Huh.
1: Let me, uh, I wonder if it's me. It might've been me. Uh, okay. I
0: think I figured out what it was. Let's see what happens. Okay. That that's fine. Um, I I can just cut off that little, little bit. We we're talking about, um, can you, can you tell us and talk about your Clarion experience? Because, um, if the listeners aren't aware, as you mentioned, it's a long running speculative fiction workshop that lasts for multiple weeks. And, um, Oftentimes, people who go there um, talk about kind of the rigor that that you're um, not only reading other people's stories, but you're also um, writing pretty much twenty four seven when you're not reading stories or sleeping. So I'm just curious, what what was your Clarion experience like? That what
1: you just said really sums it up. I mean, it's a it's a it's a six week workshop um, that's in the morning again I haven't it's been. <laughs> You know, 25, 30 years since I was there, but uh, I I would assume it's probably still pretty much the same because it works. So in the morning, uh, everybody sits around. There's generally 10 to 15 people that are accepted into the workshop. We uh, read and critique each other's stories the night before. So in the morning, we would go over those critiques. Um, And then in the afternoon, uh, we would probably spend some time with our instructors where they would either lecture us or do one do one on one critiques, and then later in the afternoon, in the evening, we would uh, write. So it's it's a truly immersive experience. I would I would mm-hmm. recommend it to anybody who really wants to take their writing to the next level. Um, in terms of deep roots, that that even went to the next level in writing workshops. I went to the Taoist Toolbox Writing Workshop um, in Taoist, New Mexico with uh, Walter Williams and Nancy Kress, who run that. And this, they really they describe it as a master-level workshop, and it really is. I mean, people who go to that workshop have either had things published or uh, almost published, um, and you spend two weeks essentially doing the same thing, but even at a faster pace. So
0: that that workshop is really what what put deep edge into publishable territory. That's great. Well, I know that Clarion, uh, as you mentioned, you have lecturers. Uh, and and those uh, lecturers are um, usually successful and um, uh, published writers. I'm curious some of the names that taught when you were there. Obviously, you said it was 25 years ago, but I'm just curious. What were some of the the writers that you learned from?
1: Yeah, so Jim Kelly, who people might know, still an incredible writer, still still writing, still working. Um, runs an MFA program out East now, or is a part of an MFA program out East. Uh, Michael QB McDowell um, is out there or, or, or was one of our instructors. Uh, Connie Willis was one of our instructors. So you're actually, you're, you're very correct. It's, um, they're very big name people that, that are there. And, I, and again, I will assume that it's still that way today, so.
0: Sure, and I'm curious, have you stayed in touch with your fellow students?
1: Well, some of them I have actually, you know. So for thirty years, in fact, one of one of the writers is still. I like, consider him one of my one of my best friends. Um, so it's interesting to see the trajectories we've all taken. I mean, some of us have gone on and kept writing. Some of us have completely stopped writing, which is unfortunate in my opinion.
0: But mm-hmm. it, it's 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 pretty interesting. And your best friend that you mentioned is he still writing? He's still writing. That's great. Well. What appeals to you about horror as both a reader and a writer?
1: Um, it's very visceral. It's uh, it's immediate. It's visceral. Uh, people can get into that world, I think, pretty easily. Um, it's, just, it's just, again, something I grew up in, right? I I read Creepy and Eerie and Famous Monsters of Filmland as a kid. So that probably is influenced me. Um, I I don't know. I think it's just, it's a very readable genre um, and it can elicit a lot of, a lot of responses from readers. And I think that's, that's a good thing. That's what I want when I read. I don't want to be bored by a book. That's, that's a, that's a no-no in my opinion. Hopefully readers won't be bored by Deep Fruits. At least the ones I've talked to that have read it, they,
0: they, they've been anything, but they haven't been bored. That's great. Well, what was your writing process when you were working on Deep Roots? Did you plot the novel beforehand, or did you just dive into the narrative?
1: Yeah, I, I don't plot. Um, you know, I like I, I wish I could be one of those people that do that. Um, I tried it; it doesn't really work for me. I just dive in. Um, I, I have a general idea where it want, where the story wants to go, but I just uh, essentially, as I say, ride the wave, see the see where the story takes me.
0: Sure, and I'm curious. Is it the same way when you sit down to write a short story? When when you write a short story, do you have kind of any um, idea, or are you just working off of an image or a character? How does that work for you?
1: Both, actually. I I, I do write off images and, and just snippets. Um, very rarely, a story will come to me. Almost written, so to speak, where I know the beginning, middle, and end, and I just have to fill in the words, so to speak. Uh, that generally, unfortunately, is not the case. Um, usually, it's a little more work. But uh, I just have ideas. I'm writing a, a number of short stories with uh, four basic characters that I've just come to know, and so I uh, I, I just go with them. What what they do, what in this situation? So that that's kind of fun too. That's that's new for me.
0: And those are recurring characters that you just they mentioned are. they are and uh yeah i i i I follow Dean Wesley Smith, and he does that um a lot of times. he has kind of universes that he will uh start working on a story and 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 um decide that it's in one or two or however many you know universes of characters, so I think that's kind of interesting to have those recurring characters show up in multiple stories
1: yeah I, I'm as I I don't know. As perhaps as I get older, or just as I become a hopefully better writer, my stories, at least many of them, are are interconnected. We're in they're in the same universe. So you might see a character from a short story pop up in a novel, or a character from a novel, or a, just a a scene or a city from a novel pop up in a short story. So it's it's interesting how that's working out.
0: That's great. Well, what writing advice would you offer for listeners who may be working on their own novels or short stories. Um, great question. Number one, read a lot, and and that
1: may may sound funny, but um, I I read more than I write. Uh, and read everything. Um, don't just read your own genre. Um, I read everything from westerns to serious uh, literature to horror to science fiction. I read everything really uh, because you have to know what's out there Um, and that's how you'll, you'll get your own voice. Um, I did an interview a few weeks ago um, for newspaper and they asked me, you know, what, what you're writing like, who would you compare it to? And my answer was, I, I mean, certainly it's horror. So you can compare it to the big names like Coots or King, but really my, I like to think my voice is now my voice. Um, You know, if you pick up a, Story by Ed Rosick. You're going to say, "Oh yeah, I I can tell that it was written by Rosick," Um, and that's what you'll eventually do. You'll eventually get your own voice. But until then, it's okay to say, "Well, I want to write like Stephen King, or I want to write like Ed Rosick." Um, (laughs) It's all right when you're starting out like that. But um, as you um, as you move on, you're you're going to gain your own voice. So read a lot. Number two, write, write every day. I don't care if it's for ten minutes. I don't care if it's for a half hour. I don't care if it's one sentence. I don't care if it's one page. But you have to write uh, every single day, and that's hard to do. That's to me the hardest part of writing, especially when you're working, right? Especially when you're not Dean Koontz or Stephen King, uh, or mm-hmm. you know, um, when you when you don't have the luxury, if you will, of, of being a full time writer. Um, that's that's very 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 hard. Um, but you have to do it because if you don't do it, then If you're not writing, then how do you call yourself a writer? You're not.
2: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.
1: means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more
0: with Viator. Sure. Well, what short stories or novels have you read recently that you enjoy? Oh, man, that's a that's, a, that's
1: a tough question because I read so much, Jeff. I mean, I really do. <laughs> um, Oh my gosh. Uh, I, I just read Joe Lansdale's latest book. I love Lansdale. I read pretty much everything he writes. Um, what did I read before that? Man, you, you got me here. I don't know. Well, I, I can tell you what I just picked up from the library. I just picked up John Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie. Um, I've never read Steinbeck. Uh, i not never read Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie. i read a lot of Steinbeck. I, I mm-hmm. find it. One of the greatest writers around, or used to be around. Um, so I, I I do that right. I'll read whatever's latest and greatest, and then I'll uh, I'll go back fifty years, hundred years, see what see what the the old great ones were writing. So I just think that's important. So I'm looking forward to trails with Charlie. I've heard a lot of good things about it.
0: That's great. Well, what is next for you beyond Deep Roots? I'm about forty thousand words
1: into my next novel. Um, it's called Wahila w-a-h-e-e-l-a Wahila is a mythical or in this case not so mythical beast of the north a wolf lake bear lake horrible creature um, it's set in the upper peninsula of Michigan I lived in the UP for a few years and so I, I grew to know it and love it but it's a very brutal place it's been described as the Siberia of the midwest and it's a very true moniker um, so it, it concerns three people a uh, 38-year-old female physician, uh, 45-year-old, uh, African-American wolf hunter from Alaska and a 13-year-old Native American, uh, teenager who get trapped in a cabin and then have to contend with this horrible creature in the midst of a once in a millennia snowstorm. So it's, I, I'm enjoying it immensely writing it actually, because I'm writing it in different viewpoints. Um, when people hopefully pick up and buy and read Deep Roots, they'll see it's, it, the point of view is one character from Kevin. And that's just the way the story is. And sometimes stories go like that. In this novel, in Wahila, it's, it's through different characters. It's through the three main people I just talked about, as well as through the eyes of uh, the uh, uh, teenage boy's uh, dog, and also through the eyes of the, or the boys, I should say, of the Wahila itself. So it's it's fun shifting between those characters.
0: That sounds great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about your stories and your novel, Deep Roots? Uh, they can go uh, to my website uh, at edrosick. That's e d r o
1: s i c k dot net, and that'll get them up to my website, which I'm pretty proud of. It just went up a few weeks ago. Um, I didn't design it or make it because i don't have that technical ability but i think it's coming out well it's again it's a brand new website so there's a lot of uh, things i need to put into it but it's it's nice and they can uh, read the first chapter of the novel of deep fruits there for free so uh, if they're at all interested go on there uh, free is one of my favorite words so jump jump on in and give it a read and if you like it you can uh, either go to amazon and buy it or it's now available online at barnes and noble um it's at one of our local bookstores here, uh, in physical copy, Schuler Books, or you can buy it online
0: there. So, it's it's getting out there. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Ed Rosick, author of the horror novel Deep Roots. You can go buy a copy of the novel today. And Ed, thanks for doing this interview.
1: Oh, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks. Deep Roots. By Edward R. Rosick Part 1 He who fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. But when you gaze long into an abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. Frederick Nietzsche Chapter 1 Kevin Siano got out of the shower in the cramped confines of his bedroom when the rat crawled on his left foot. My shape and front claws raked across his toes and Kevin instinctively jerked away before he looked down to see the creature. Thin, gray fur, with eyes leaking blood, slowly moving forward. Without thinking, Kevin grabbed the creature by its long, scaled tail and smashed it onto the wet linoleum floor. Once. Twice. By the third blow, the rat lay dead. Its head a dripping lump of broken bone and brains. Kevin dropped the bloody mess into the waste paper basket and made a mental note to take out the trash before he left for work. It'll teach me to buy, bargain bin rat poison, Kevin thought. He washed his hands before drying off the rest of his six-foot-tall, sinewy body, moving it to his bedroom to get dressed. Next time, it's nothing but the best for those little bastards. Thin blade of early morning sunlight worked their way through uneven metal venetian blinds that covered the windows of his one-bedroom house on the east side of Detroit. Fatigued, Kevin looked at the clock on the nightstand next to his bed. 6.32 a.m. He shut off the alarm, which was due to go off in eight minutes. Besides the clock, set a 5 by 7 faded colored picture in a cheap plastic frame. As Kevin put on a pair of worn but clean jeans, he glanced at the picture for a moment, at the smiling faces of the three people, an older woman dressed in a tie-dyed T-shirt and jeans, in between a lanky young man with long, light brown hair tied in a ponytail, which hung laz- lazily over his bare left shoulder, and a petite, attractive, dark-haired young woman wearing a loose-fitting, simple white dress that stopped midway down her tan thighs. The young man had a tight smile, as if holding something in, while a young woman beamed a joyous grin that could not be faked. Kevin stared at the photo for a few seconds more, then walked back into the bedroom to finish dying, drying his hair. As he started to vigorously rub his head with a towel, a sudden pinprick of pain on his right shoulder caused Kevin to flinch. What the hell? he turned his head and expected to see an inflamed zit or an insect bite. After all, he had seen more spiders in the house the last four weeks than he had in his entire 30 years of life. However, it was neither a zit nor a spider bite, but rather a raised area of skin the size of a dime on the front of his right shoulder. He cleaned the steam off the bathroom mirror and looked closer. The lesion was a perfect circle, like a tiny bicycle tire implanted beneath his pale, freckled skin. There seemed to be no redness or discharge. Cautiously, Kevin ran his left index finger over the raised flesh. It was hard, devoid of any sensation. No pain. No tingling. A small circle of nothing. Ah, another piece of artwork to go with the rest, he thought. Kevin briefly looked at his forearms, enveloped with a menagerie of prison tattoos and scarifications, concentric circles, jagged pentagrams, crisscrossing triangles, and other geometric designs, then looked away. They were forever a reminder of his time at Fairview State Penitentiary, of his dealings with Charles Riadona, times that he wished with all his heart he could forget. Kevin touched the lesion one more time. Probably an ingrown hair. I guess it beats growing hair out of my ears. By the time he had finished drying off, the thought of the lesion had completely left his mind. After finishing getting dressed in a white shirt and simple red striped tie, Kevin sucked down a cup of cold coffee and made his way outside. The late September morning was unusually cold and he considered going back inside to get a jacket then dismissed the thought for fear of missing his morning bus. Kevin looked up and down the block of Miranda Street for any too late predators. Except for three large raccoons working diligently to get into a garbage bank on the overgrown lawn of a boarded, up-abandoned house across the street, there were no other living creatures in sight. He walked toward Lincoln Street where, four more blocks north, He would pick up a Detroit Metro bus for the six-mile ride to Woodward and Greenlawn and his $10 an hour, cash only, job. He was almost at the corner when he came upon a fresh splatter of blood on the cracked sidewalk. Someone must have gotten popped during a fight. Kevin bent closer to the crimson puddle and flashed back to his prison time. Sitting across from a fat, balding psychiatrist with bulging eyes and an enormous Adam's apple, who would flash one card after next, of Shock implots. And, and what of this one? The shrink would say in his condescending voice, staring over his two small glasses at Kevin. I don't know, Kevin replied, knowing he should give some bullshit answer, but he was too tired, too damn defeated to muster up an ounce of energy to lie. And what of this one? The shrink said again mercifully holding up the last of the cards. The ink block was different from all the rest. While the others were pale blue in swirling patterns of unrecognizable shapes, this one was dark crimson with sharp edges jutting out from the corner of a small shape that appeared vaguely feminine. Why is that one a different color, Kevin had asked. Staring intently at the picture, like looking into the face of a long-lost friend while trying desperately to remember their name. "'What do you see?' the shrink asked, his voice rising in excitement. "'I want to know why it's a different color,' Kevin said with more force. "'What kind of mind game is you pulling here?' "'Now, Kevin,' the shrink had said, his voice back to its usual arrogance. "'I thought we were learning to control an anger. "'You know what's your anger that got you "'into this unfortunate situation?' And it's your anger that Kevin slapped the card out of the shrink's hand so fast. It was like a magic trick. You want to know what anger's really about, Kevin said. His face was mere inches from the shrink's. Try spending 24 hours out in the block and you'll learn more about anger than you could all your years in school. The outburst cost Kevin a month in solitary.